Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Pat. Pat is quite serious. We have been friends since childhood. That was not an exaggeration. So, In 1987, Pat and I were in the Soviet Union, <clears throat> and we were there for three and a half weeks, and we didn't do just the Moscow-Leningrad, as it was called then. We were there for over three weeks, and we saw Georgia and Uzbekistan and, and, and all of the areas around the Black Sea, and we saw the sum those summering in it. <laughs> on the beach, and it was a most interesting and unusual experience. But one of the most exciting afternoons that we spent was at Spaso House, where the ambassador at that point in time, the Honorable Jack Matlock and his lovely wife, Rebecca, were in residence. <clears throat> we spent the afternoon with them having tea, and Gorbachev was just coming into power, his full power, and Glasnost was just beginning. And there was a little bit of a, of a tete-a-tete about whether he was going moving too fast or whether he would be able to affect the changes that would come about in the Soviet Union. And, and Ambassador Matlock and Mrs. Matlock were not necessarily in agreement on that. They had, a little, they had a little difference there of, of what they were thinking, but it was a most wonderful afternoon. They were gracious and welcoming to these Americans so far, far away from home. And Catherine Perot was also with us, as was Pat's daughter. So it was, it was a great afternoon. So it is a particular honor for me today to introduce our speaker. Fifteen years after the end of the Cold War, Russia and the states of the former Soviet Union remain an enigma. Mort Zuckerman, the editor-in-chief of U U.S. News & World Report, wrote last week that Russia is like the Matryoshka dolls. Inside the big doll, there are lots of little dolls, and they're always interesting and always a surprise and always unique. Today, we have the good fortune to have with us one of our nation's premier specialists on the Soviet Union and now Russia to help us decipher this puzzle. This summer, the leaders of the most powerful democracies, the G8 nations, will meet in St. Petersburg. Earlier this month, a report prepared by a task force at the Council on Foreign Relations called on the Bush administration to rethink its partnership with Russia. While it is recognized that the Putin administration has created economic opportunities for the middle class, the report criticized the tightening on opposition parties, restrictions on the press, and increased corruption. And my husband and I were in Russia for about three weeks last summer, now Russia rather than the Soviet Union, and I would say that was uh, something that we felt and we felt was quite apparent. This is an especially critical time for us to consider how the Cold War ended and its impact on today's Russia. <clears throat> Ambassador Jack Matlock entered the U.S. Foreign Service in 1956 and was first posted to Moscow in 1961. From 1987 to 1991, he served both presidents, Reagan and Bush, as our ambassador to the Soviet Union. Prior to this appointment, he worked at the National Security Council as a special assistant to the president for national security affairs and senior director for European and Soviet affairs. There have been many outstanding books written about the end of the Cold War, 
but it is always in every, it is obvious whether it is um, Secretary Baker's autobiography or Strobe Talbot's as the highest levels, that Jack Matlock is in every discussion, in every room, and the historical record documents his influence. Many of you heard Reagan, Richard Reeves speak last month about President Reagan's preparation for his summit meetings in Geneva in November of 1985. As the three networks anchors spoke of the mood of expectation surrounding what was called the Super Summit, Reagan was debating Jack Matlock in a mansion owned by the Aga Khan. Speaking in Russian, Matlock played Gorbachev in dress rehearsal, complete with interpreters, so that Reagan would be comfortable with the bilingual conversations. Matlock and Robert Gates of the CIA were responsible for Reagan's independent study course, Soviet Union 101. Since 1991, Matlock has held a number of academic posts, including visiting professor and lecturer of public international affairs at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. <clears throat> Excuse me, George F. Keenan Professor at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Davis Professor in the Practice of International Diplomacy at Columbia University. He holds a, ma a bachelor's degree from Duke University and a master's degree from the Russian Institute at Columbia. I know you're going to want to purchase Reagan and Gorbachev, How the Cold War Ended, and you will also want to read Autopsy on an Empire, his fascinating account of the Soviet collapse. It is with great pleasure that I introduce Jack Matlock and welcome his lovely wife, Rebecca. They have five children. He said three grandchildren. What a guy. Please come. No, thank you so much for those very kind words, Linda. And I just want to say that it is a real delight uh, to be invited to come back after actually more than a decade and visit uh, your wonderful city and um, to see many of our uh, friends and acquaintances who are in this area. So the, the people who run the World Affairs Council, uh, Pat and uh, Jim uh, and the others, I do want to thank you for uh, bringing Rebecca and me here and to, to see your friends and to visit your city once more. It's a wonderful thing. You know, when I think about the Cold War, one of the first things that comes to mind was, well, what kind of war was it? And I'm almost tempted to write my next book with the title, The War That Wasn't. Because what was important about the Cold War was that the principles had never fought a hot war. If they had, I can assure you, it's most unlikely any of us would be here today. And particularly for the high school students here, I should point out that during the Cold War, during the height of it, particularly in the 19, late 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the early 80s, the United States and the Soviet Union by the late 60s had tens of thousands of nuclear warheads on rockets which could reach the other country with great accuracy, each of which warhead could destroy a city, and if they had all had been used, could destroy mankind about seven times over. We're rightly worried about terrorism today, and of course we have to deal with the great threat that is, but the threat of nuclear 
mutual suicide that hung over us during the Cold War was incomparably greater. I think we need to keep those things in mind uh, when we look at our problems today. Now, the reason I say we really need to think about the Cold War as not an ordinary war is that, you know, there are people increasingly who talk as if all wars that were caught in the 20th century were something similar. I've even heard it said there was World War I, World War II, the Cold War is World War III, and now we're in World War IV. That just confuses people's thinking because the Cold War was nothing like World War I and II. And quite frankly, the war against terror is nothing like not only the two world wars, it's also nothing like the Cold War. And the problem of lumping them all together is that you tend to think, well, if something worked in one of those previous ones, maybe it's going to work today. And yet, if you're dealing with a quite different phenomenon, you better think through uh, the methods you use. They're very likely not to be the same. But really, what I wanted to talk to today is how the Cold War ended and what the implications are for us. And I do that because not only many young people in our population today and among us don't really remember the Cold War, uh, but even those of us who lived through it, I think a very large number have some of the wrong ideas about it. And if you get the wrong idea in your mind, you're apt to make mistakes about the present and the future. You know, when I was ambassador in Moscow in the late 80s and the early 90s, people often ask me, you know, what's going to happen? You know, is Gorbachev for real? Is his reforms, are they going to work? And um, frankly, I don't know what I told our guests uh, uh, there that uh, afternoon uh, of tea, but my usual answer was, I don't really know what's going to happen. Now, when it happens, I'll be happy to explain why it was inevitable. <laughs> because when you look back, you know, well, hindsight always uh, trumps uh, foresight. And, but I am convinced that we can't really pass judgment about such things as where Russia is going now and what we should do about it, if anything, without a pretty clear idea of what happened during the Cold War and after and how it ended and uh, what caused what. Now, what are some of these misconceptions that are very widespread, even with people who, in effect, witnessed uh, many of the things, at least uh, from a, a distance. Well, you know, uh, one of them is that, uh, uh, that the victory in the Cold War, it's often said we won the Cold War, and people said, well, you know, that may be like a victory in other war. Russia must be a defeated country. And frankly, much of our foreign policy in the 1990s seemed to assume that the Russian Federation was a defeated country, defeated in the Cold War. And yet this gets everything all mixed up. Yes, the Cold War ended on terms that we set, but those terms were set to be consistent with the true interests of a peaceful Soviet Union. And when Gorbachev agreed to them, he agreed to them in the interests of the Soviet Union. And so that ending the Cold War was in our mutual interest, it was a mutual victory over 
I think you might say the insanity of the arms race, because it, at, at its uh, basis, it was based on insanity in a way. Uh, why do two countries develop thousands of arms that cannot rationally be used and would be suicidal if they are? Uh, of course, the problem then was not how much they would destroy if they were used. It was, how do you make sure they're never used? And the fear was always, if one side thought they had an advantage, they would try for some political advantage, and then if the other side resisted, they could be drawn in willy-nilly in, into a war. But the fact was, that arms race was absolutely without any real rationality connected with the real national interests of both sides. And it was in the interest of both sides to end it. It gave Gorbachev and the Soviet Union at least the opportunity to try to reform. They couldn't do that with all of the expenses of the arms race, and the, and the, and the arms race was produced by the political tensions that brought it about. So, you know, whatever, yes, we won the Cold War in the sense that our values prevailed, our strategy prevailed, but they too won it by changing the policies which had been self-defeating, they developed an advantage. So we really should look at that as a mutual victory. And, not, and certainly it was not a military victory. And certainly it was not a victory over Russia. This is another point. People tend to you know, think that the present-day Russia is, is a successor of the Soviet Union. In a certain sense, in international law, it is, in the sense that they're bound by uh, the agreements that the Soviet Union signed. They agreed to that. But the fact is, it's a totally different structure of government. It occupies only part of uh, the Soviet Union, with less than half of the Soviet Union's population, with a totally different structure of economy, and so on, and a totally different philosophy. So that you are looking at states which are radically different, even though the people, obviously, are the same people that were in uh, uh, the Russian Federated Soviet Socialist Republic, one of the 15 republics of the Soviet Union. So, yes, there are many continuities, but the structure of the state and the leadership is quite different uh, from that of the Soviet Union. And um, so that's another illusion that people often have or an assumption they make without saying it uh, that really needs to be combated. And another idea that is out there is that the Cold War ended with the breakup of the Soviet Union. I think CNN ran a couple of years ago a whole multi-part series on the Cold War. And uh, it ended with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the communist flag coming down and the Russian national flag going up over the Kremlin. Uh, before it was shown, I, we had an evening with the producer, uh, several of us who were sort of specialists in uh, Soviet and Russian affairs, and we told him vigorously, look, this is distorting history. The Cold War had ended at least two years before that happened. This was a separate event. And he said, oh, come on, it's much more dramatic to end the Cold War with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I said, well, you know, is this supposed to be drama or is this supposed to be history? Well, of course, it went on CNN anyway, but the, the, obviously... A breakup of a huge empire like the Soviet Union uh, was more dramatic than sort of the petering out by agreement of the Cold War. But 
Uh, and frankly, the Soviet Union wouldn't have broken up if the Cold War hadn't ended. And yet, the fact is that it had ended before that. And you know, in the last year of the Soviet Union, in many ways, the people in Russia and the other republics were much freer uh, that year than they were later, after the Soviet Union broke up. And it was not American goal of Amer uh, it was not the goal of American policy to break up the Soviet Union. Three of the republics, the three in the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, had been illegally taken into the Soviet Union by Stalin. We had never recognized that was legal. We pressed them always to let those three countries regain their independence. The other 12 republics, we hoped, would remain in a democratic federation by agreement with Gorbachev, and that's what he was trying to negotiate in 1991, and that's why President George H.W. Bush, August 1st, 1991, in Kiev, advised the non-Russian republics to sign Gorbachev's Union Treaty. We did what we could, which wasn't enough, and uh, uh, to encourage a democratic federation, not the independence of the various states. So now, so why did the Soviet Union break up? Well, it broke up because of internal pressures. Another of these myths out there is, you know, that the United States in effect destroyed communism in the Soviet Union by bringing great economic and military pressure to bear on it. Again, that's just not true. It is so common, though, that when President Reagan died, there was a cover story with a huge headline in The Economist magazine, one of my favorites, by the way, um, saying, the man who destroyed communism. Well, that was not Ronald Reagan's position. He, of course, didn't like the communist system. At one point, he called the Soviet Union an evil empire. But what he tried to do was to encourage reform. He never told the Soviet leaders, you know, you've got to give up communism before we can cooperate. In effect, what he said, you've got to stop pushing other people around and trying to impose your system on the others. As far as your system is concerned, it's your business, and we think a different one would be a lot better for you and all your people, but that's your business. What we want to do is change your behavior. And, you know, he wrote in his memoirs, that he had the feeling in December 1988, just before he left office, that finally he and Gorbachev were working as partners. And then he later observed that the Cold War was over, but it was not a victory of one country over another. It was a victory of one idea over another, of one system over another. And of course, by 1991, before the Soviet Union broke up, it was becoming a different system. It was opening up. And many of the problems we had had, including protection of human rights, were being corrected already in 91. And there has been retrogression since 91 in large parts of the former Soviet Union. So the idea that somehow it was U.S. policy to break up the Soviet Union and that we did it by simply bringing pressure to bear on them both of those are simply, I think, incorrect. So what did bring the breakup of the Soviet Union? You know, I think that there were three events which were so important 
in international relations that I call them seismic. Because if we were talking geology, it would be like continents splitting up and floating away. In very few years, at the end of the 80s and to the early 90s, the political map of the world was simply rearranged by three events. One was the end of the Cold War. This happened first. And it happened because you got cooperation between the Soviet leader and the Western leaders, and particularly the American leaders. At that time, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. The second big thing that happened was the end of communist control over the Soviet Union. Now, we didn't do that. Gorbachev did that. He, he used the power of a general secretary, which was really the power of a dictator, to destroy the party which he headed. And he was probably the only person in the world who could have done it. It was structured so you, you, you couldn't really have a revolution from below because they had too many instruments of compulsion. And external pressure of the sort that was brought during the Cold War simply made them stronger. You release that pressure, and Gorbachev had the insight to see that the communist system was preventing the Soviet Union from becoming a modern state. He realized he had to open up the country. And when he started reforms and he found that the Communist Party itself was opposing him, he decided we've got to take them out of power. Actually, he hoped to convert the Communist Party into a Democratic Party that would simply try to win elections. Uh, and, uh, I mean, he, be, but when he found that was impossible, he really, step by step, went after the power of the party. So this second event occurred... It was enabled, one might say, by the end of the Cold War, but it occurred because of things that happened within the Soviet Union. And how about the breakup of the Soviet Union? These were pressures inside. That was a country, a state, put together by force and held together by the threat of force. Now, if you remove the enforcers, the party which controlled the secret police or the regular police and the army... You've got no way to hold things together. Instead, all of the pent-up emotions, all of the pent-up tensions between haves and have-nots, between those who are ruling and the others, between nationalities, and the Soviet Union was, did not at that point even have a majority they had, of Russians. The Russians were in a slight minority. It was a multinational state and a multinational state that had been assembled largely by force. So when all these things began to be played out, and particularly when they ran into increasing difficulties as they tried to make that command economy with everything owned by the state more efficient, uh, the instruments of holding it together by force were no longer there. And, of course, eventually it collapsed, but it collapsed because of internal forces. So, it was the misconceptions about these things that really caused me to write the book I did about Reagan and Gorbachev. Um, and uh, what I wanted to get across there was the way two of the leaders, helped by others, it wasn't just two people, obviously, uh, were able, starting from almost opposite ends of the political spectrum, and the ideological spectrum, step by step, 
came to develop a partnership to achieve something in the interest of both their countries. And on the Reagan's part, it did not require a great change of policy from those his predecessors had, but it did require a change of tactics and, and the way you present that policy uh, and how you set your priorities. In Gorbachev's case, it required an almost 180-degree turn. And the story of how that happened and the role of individuals. Another thing that I really wanted to get across is political leadership makes a difference. For the students there, you'll find there's still many social scientists who, who develop theories. And these theories are important to understand. They give us insight into a lot of things. But sometimes they either say or imply that individuals really don't matter, that history is pushed by economic or political forces or, or, or various things, and, well, the individual could only make the decision he made or she made. It just isn't true. That's not the life that I observed. Most political leaders do have choices. These choices may be limited. You know, obviously, if you don't have a strong military, you can't use military methods. You have to use others. Uh, if you don't have a strong economy, you also don't have certain things that you can use. But the fact is that the way you use what you have, the sort of goals you have, and your ability to use them effectively, reflects choices. And these choices have consequences. And that's what I wanted to get at. What were the sort of choices that, in the first instance, President Reagan made, and then President Gorbachev. Well, as I pointed out, although what Reagan was asking for was not radically different from what uh, previous American presidents had asked for, we had so many issues going on with the Soviet Union. At one point, we listed everything we were negotiating, and this was actually before the Reagan administration, and when I was director of Soviet affairs in the State Department, we had 86 separate negotiations going on, and, you know, some of them might sound rather trivial, like protection of polar bears, uh, but, you know, all of them were of some importance, uh, and uh, some of them, of course, dealt with the key issues of the time, such as nuclear weapons uh, and uh, uh, other things. So uh, there was a wide range of issues, and, you know, what Reagan, I think, changed more than any individual issue, there were arguments about the details of these, was a feeling that you couldn't just isolate one of these issues and say, we've got to work on that because it's more important than the others. I think the biggest difference between his approach and President Carter's approach, Carter's uh, the predecessor, was Carter thought that nuclear weapons were so damaging, so threatening, that we had to deal with that issue, and it, it had to overshadow every other issue with the Soviet Union. Now, Reagan hated nuclear weapons at least as much as Carter, maybe even more so, and emotionally, but he understood that you couldn't single out just that, that you had to get other things too, that you had to start changing the political approach that the Soviets had. Now, to push, be short, if you negotiated an arms control t treaty, as President Carter did, 
and the Soviets invade Afghanistan, as they did before it was ratified, the Senate isn't going to ratify an arms control treaty. And so what President Reagan was able to do after about two years into his administration and before Gorbachev came to power, and he did this first in a speech in January 1984, was to set forth four categories of of problems we had with the Soviet Union and saying, you know, we've really got to end this crazy arms race, but to do it, we've got to work in all of these areas. And we're probably going to find out that we can't get very far in one unless we are beginning to make progress in the others. He didn't say they're rigidly tied together and, you know, we won't do this unless you do better on human rights, for example. But he did say, you know, we've got to sort of have progress in all of them or we're going to have trouble making very great progress in any of them. Now, what were those four? One of them was to reduce and eventually, if possible, eliminate weapons of mass destruction, particularly nuclear weapons. The second was to end our, by our military interventions into third areas. And when he put this out, he put this out not saying, in fact, he said specifically, we're not accusing the Soviet Union of creating all the problems in the world. But what we observe is that when there are problems, and these are local, the Soviets come in, they supply arms to one of the side, trying to get influence by, you know, force of arms locally. And when they do that, we are encouraged to supply arms to the other side. And we are now stuck with a lot of these wars, proxy wars, uh, you might say, in Latin America, in Africa, Southeast Asia, that, you know, he proposed, let's both back up, cut off the arms supply, try to, and then encourage the local people to make peace. And if they can do that, we can cooperate to help them build back their economies. That was also a change in U.S. policy, because before we had tried to keep the Russians out economically into uh, 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 developing countries if we could. He was saying, look, if we can, if we can end our military inter uh, interference uh, in these, we can now cooperate in the future. The third of these areas was human rights. We need better respect for human rights. And when he said that, he put all of these things in a mutual way. He did. Obviously, we thought our human rights record was a heck of a lot better than theirs. But we said, look, we need, we need to work on that principle. And we'll, in effect, we'll discuss it in both countries. We have our ideas about yours. If you've got our ideas about ours, let's discuss them. And the fourth thing, what we really wanted to say is you've got to bring down that Iron Curtain and open up your country. But you couldn't put it that way. And what we said, we need to build a better working relationship. And that means opening up for more exchanges of people, including young people. It means more athletic exchanges. It means you know, more information flowing back way, uh, both ways. It means more American uh, speakers to be able to speak on Soviet television, for example. They've been virtually excluded for years. And so on. So, in effect, bring down the Iron Curtain. And yet again, it was pictured as something we could do mutually. And he ended this speech 
with a section that he wrote himself. I had drafted the rest of the speech uh, with a lot of help from people. But when he got it, he said, it's just dull. And I said, well, sorry, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we, we want to be precise about these things. And he said, no, it's dull. Let me work on it. And so he, um, he added a story. It's the only thing most people remember about that speech, which tells you that he was right uh, in his judgment. Uh, and that was, the, it was about an imaginary American couple actually meeting an imaginary Soviet couple and finding they had so much in common that they really should be friends and would be friends. And he ended with, you know, people don't make wars, governments do. We must talk. Well, um, at first people didn't believe. You know. uh, the media, you know, said, oh, this is the opening of his campaign. He doesn't really mean this. Yeah, this is guy's called him an evil empire. And yet uh, this really was his approach. But we got no response out of the Soviet leadership before Gorbachev. They were still in their old mode. And, but, and even when Gorbachev came to office, although it was clear that he was going to be younger and he was a lot healthier than the three uh, general secretaries that preceded him, one of them, uh, Brezhnev, for the last two years of his rule was hardly coherent. Uh, uh, he had to be prompted almost everything he said, which he would say with a slur. Uh, in fact, even several years before he left office, I remember uh, he, uh, he visited Washington when Nixon was president, and maybe he had a little too much vodka and wine at dinner, but when he made his final remarks in the East Room of the White House, uh, I couldn't understand a word he said, and my Russian is pretty good. And I complimented his translator, who had translated it uh, brilliantly English. <laughs> And uh, I went up to him and I said, Victor, I really got to compliment you. I couldn't understand a word the man said. And Victor said, well, I couldn't either, Jack, but I knew what he wanted to say. <laughs> anyway, and then, and then Andropov, the former KGB head, was there for a little over a year, but he had a kidney ailment and was actually on dialysis most of the time the last months of his regime. And then Chernyenko came in, who had emphysema and all sorts of other things, and uh, he had been just a crony of Brezhnev's and essentially his chief file clerk. So, you know, you had Soviet leaders that uh, Reagan was really interested. He really wanted to meet these guys and start talking to them. But yeah, they were unable to meet him. And, you know, you may recall uh, that in the 84 campaign when Walter Mondale said, you know, he had not gotten together with the Soviet leaders and we weren't getting the arms control that we wanted, he said, he shrugged and said, well, you know, they keep dying on me. Uh, well, finally, finally, in, in March 1985, Chernyenko died. Gorbachev was made general secretary. Now, his first speech to the, uh, to, to the party, you know, sounded as if he was just going to be more vigorous in carrying out all of their old policies. And yet, he was a much younger man, much better educated than his predecessors, and as we learned later, had a lot more intellectual insight in what was wrong with the system. We didn't know this then. We learned it later, that even before he became general secretary, even before he was brought to a senior position in Moscow, he and his closest friends were discussing how the Soviet Union was on the wrong track. 
and saying we can't keep going on like this. He knew they needed reforms. He couldn't say it at first because he was still rather controversial. He had barely gotten in, but he had to get rid of his enemies in the Politburo uh, and get full control before he could really start changing things. And when he started changing things, he started off on the wrong foot. Several of the early policies, there was an anti-alcohol campaign that was almost, as, as I would say, draconian as our prohibition, and which actually just led to more and more drunkenness and moonshining all over the place. <laughs> well, the Russians know how to make moonshine, and uh, after that had been in uh, they'd, about two years, and supposedly they were cutting down on alcohol consumption, and I must say Russians need to cut down on alcohol consumption, but uh, this is not the way to do it. Uh, Gorbachev told the parliament at one point, last year sugar consumption went up 17%. And comrades, I think we all know what that's being used for. <laughs> anyway, uh, these first methods just weren't working. Meanwhile, the old policies weren't working. But he, unlike the others, were willing to start talking about them. And, of course, he and, Ray, uh, he and Reagan met for the first time in November uh, uh, 1985. And it was billed as a get-acquainted meeting, but, and we didn't expect any groundbreaking arms control me, uh, agreement. But what we got was a very important agreement. We renewed the exchanges agreement, which had expired during the Carter administration. Now, that was an agreement that allowed sort of limited cultural, athletic, and other exchanges uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union that had been signed in the Eisenhower administration. Carter let it expire because of their invasion of Afghanistan. In other words, uh, it's a question of shooting ourselves in the foot because, you know, the communication opening up that society had to be one of our main goals and to simply cut off the contacts uh, uh, even if they were controlled contacts, uh, to bring pressure to bear on them for something they did wrong when it wasn't going to bring any pressure to bear on them uh, was pretty self-defeating. So one of the first things that President Reagan wanted to do was to restore these contacts and expand them, but without in any way excusing the invasion of Afghanistan. So this was, you know, it took a bit of a political juggle. But we found, to our surprise, pleasant surprise, that Gorbachev was willing to approve the biggest and most extensive exchange agreement ever. And uh, I helped draft that, and we put in as a challenge such things as high school exchanges with home stays, undergraduate exchanges. Before, we had nothing below the level of graduate students, and they would usually send graduate students in their late 30s, early 40s, maybe even more, uh, with already PhDs in physics, going into the hard sciences, and so on, or else potential KGB officers who simply wanted to figure out how to be in society. So, um, you know, it was pretty one-sided. But Gorbachev suddenly, as I said, with, without heavy arguments, agreed really to begin to open them up. So this told us that, look, this is a man we've got to really keep testing him on this and keep pushing him to see how much we can begin to penetrate that Iron Curtain. Well, now, I'm not going to go through all of the steps uh, I, I did in my book, if anybody's interested in, in reading it, of these various meetings. But it took step by step. And probably the crucial meeting psychologically between Reagan and Gorbachev was the one in Reykjavik in uh, Iceland in 1986. 
Because there they came very near to agreeing to eliminate all nuclear weapons in both countries in 10 years. Now, this was so broad and so radical, it probably never would have worked. But most of what they were agreeing on would have worked, uh, both of them actually for different reasons, and neither of them very good reasons, turned down the broad agreement. But in a sense, it was lucky they did, because it would have been very hard, actually, to negotiate the details of something as radical and broad as they were talking about. And they were both very angry when they didn't get, you know, complete agreement there at Reykjavik. But when they both went home, and particularly when Gorbachev went home and started thinking about that meeting, his aides said, you know, within a few months, he saw two things. One, they were losing in the arms race, and if they continued it, we were really going to clobber them. After all, we talked about a, a large arms buildup that Reagan had. It was not really that much more than Carter had asked for his last term. But the fact was that it was taking maybe up to 6.8% of our GDP. The Soviet Union, with a GDP not more than 40% of ours, with a lot more people than we had, was using up to 25% already. I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, and, and, of course, this was depressing living standards and everything. There was no way they could keep this up. And actually, the, one of the things that Reagan wanted to get across in his first meeting with Gorbachev is, look, we don't want this arms race, but if you guys want it, you're going to lose it. So let's just call it off. By February 87, after Reykjavik, Gorbachev was telling the Politburo that same thing. They've got us in a vice, and you know, their policy is to force us into an arms race, because they know they can win it. Now, we've got to force them to cut arms, and to do so, we've got to start cutting unilaterally, because, comrades, we've built much more than we need. So, in effect, yes, this was pressure on him to do what we wanted him to do, but it took real guts to change their general attitude toward this. So these were two people who started from different things, but step by step began to realize that each of them was sincere in wanting particularly to deal with this nuclear genie and to get it back into the bottle and, if possible, to uh, find a way to put the world toward eliminating them. And it was that that I think increasingly uh, brought them together to the point that at their last meeting, while Reagan was still in office, as I mentioned, uh, Reagan noted in his diary that evening, when we parted, I had the feeling we parted as partners. And Gorbachev goes back and tells the Politburo, this is December 1988, that Reagan had told him in private that I'm, he was praying to God that his successor, George H.W. Bush, who had already been elected, would carry out his policies. Now, uh, so the two, by that time, had a feeling that they were on the same thing. That was the year that I think that ideologically the Cold War ended. Because all of the, the arms race, the competition over territory and over influence, all flowed from the ideology, from their attempt to establish a communist system, not only in their country, but in other countries. And their conviction under Marxism that this was the future. They said they were atheists, but they looked at the Marxian interpretation of history as if, as a religious person would think of the act of God, that they were simply doing God's work by spreading communism. It was Gorbachev who simply discarded that philosophy 
And by 1988, he was telling his people, we must act in accord with the common interests of mankind. And the most common and the most basic of these interests is survival and peace. And if we continue as we have been, we threaten that. Now, Karl Marx never talked about common interests of mankind. Only classes had interests, the proletariat, the bourgeoisie. And all of history under Marx was to be a fight between these classes. And eventually, Marx said, the proletariat, the workers, will eliminate the bourgeois class and will set up a communist socialist society. This was a utopia. And until Gorbachev discarded it, this was the official ideology of the Soviet Union. This was the driving force that caused the Cold War to happen. He pulled the ideological pinnings out. Okay, I'm going on too long. Let me just summarize with a few of the lessons that I think were there and we don't always observe today. First of all, the big fight within the administration was not so much over what our policy should be in terms of our goals, but whether we should talk to the Soviet Union at all. There was a fairly large group of people that said, this is such an iniquitous system. They are so entrenched, they're so ingrained that, you know, we've got to press them to change before we really deal with them and negotiate. Ronald Reagan turned that down every time. He said, yes, They'll probably have to change before we can have long-standing agreements, but they're more apt to change if we talk to them, if we communicate, if we negotiate, than if we simply keep hammering at them. Um, so we never refused to talk, and we made our first order of business establishing communication and expanding that communication. A second thing, and I've alluded to this before, is present-day Russia is not the Soviet Union. And whatever we may think of where they're going, they're not going back to the Soviet Union. That is not the problem. Uh, the uh, Russia now, whether it's from a political, economic, or any other point of view, and particularly from the standpoint of the citizens' freedom, is eons ahead of anything that was in the Soviet Union except its last two years, when, uh, when it was beginning to fall apart. Uh, they, and um, uh, I can discuss that more if people wish. Finally... I would say both these presidents had the profound con conviction that nuclear weapons cannot be used rationally by any um, country, that by their very existence they are a threat to mankind, and that political leaders should find a way to put us on the road to complete elimination. That was a goal that we seem to forget in the 90s uh, in our own policy. Uh, and now... Uh, a final one, I would say, is one of the philosophy was that if you want to change a country or a policy, don't make it seem to them that doing so is a favor to you. And so often, when we particularly use military means to, to support human rights, what we're telling a leadership that if I respect my own people in human rights, I'm doing you a favor. Therefore, you've got to give me something for it. No. We've really got to have a way to get across that. Do yourself a favor. You'll have a healthier society if you do these things. Not because we're demanding it, but because you need to do it. Uh, and uh, again, uh, the final one is Reagan said to us many times, and at times wrote it, whatever we achieve, we must not claim victory. 
because that will make the next achievement more difficult. And when Gorbachev, by 1987, accepted implicitly the agenda we had set in 1985, we never said, this is our agenda, this is our victory. We said, hooray, you're on the right track. You're really changing your country the way it needs to be. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador. We have a few questions from the students, and we have about 15 minutes. So I'm going to ask the questions to be as brief as possible, and we'll try to cover as many the, the, as we the can. The difficult thing will be keeping the answers. Well, first. I'm here. I'm going, to, I'm going to cut you off, because so, we're going to get at least 10 questions here. Uh, Plano West, what is the likelihood, in your opinion, that what's happening and occurring right now with Russia and China's recent partnership will deter Iran from pursuing nuclear weapons? Um, I don't know. Um, you know, I think basically Russia is trying to uh, uh, to help keep Iran from being uh, from getting nuclear weapons. It's certainly not in their interest. On the other hand, you know, their policies have not been identical to ours, and um, uh, some of the help they have given to power stations uh, um, uh, we we feel is is not uh, is not useful. Um, but I. I think that it is going to take the international community, if we ever convince Iran, I must say that I'm skeptical that we can convince Iran not to get nuclear weapons unless, unless a lot of other things change. We have to recognize Iran and other countries don't get them to attack us. They get them because of the situation they see themselves in, and in part because they know we don't attack countries that have nuclear weapons. And we may go out and attack them to keep them from getting them. We simply encourage others to get them. Um, and, you know, Iran has Pakistan on one side and India, both of which Pakistan is not very friendly, uh, Muslim country, Sunni, got India, and it's got Israel, all of them with nuclear weapons. Uh, unless we can change sort of the overall geometry of the area, I, I'm afraid we're going to fail uh, to convince any Iranian government uh, uh, to give up the program. Angela, you had a great question, but I think the ambassador answered it. Her question was, could you talk more about the relationship between Gorbachev and Reagan and who really um, uh, de deserves the most uh, uh, attention and, and for, for doing it? Yeah, I would just briefly say I think it took both of them. And uh, we are lucky that both were in office at the same time. Neither could have done it alone, and it's sort of like arguing a chicken and egg to say who's more responsible than the other. Took them both. Other questions from the floor? Yes, sir. Uh, what is your today's view of today's leadership in the Kremlin and their motivation? One day they seem to be running a government, and another day they seem to be running a business, like oil and presidential yeah. funds and things like that. Yeah, uh, today's government. I think clearly President Putin, well, he inherited a situation that was pretty close to chaos. Uh, uh, the corruption, although it seems to be growing, is not new. Crime may be a bit less, as, as, you know, uh, if you ex take corruption out of that. Uh, what Putin has been able to do is to go uh, re-centralize a good bit of power, uh, not nearly to the degree it was centralized in the Soviet Union, and also to address the Russian concern in the 90s that they were being ignored in the world, that they had gone from being a superpower to being simply an impotent power and one that was completely being ignored. 
And therefore, what he's got is uh, Russia has energy resources. And he realizes that in the present-day world, the world needs this energy. Uh, and uh, he's going to use it to put Russia back on the map. Now, on the whole, I think most of what he's done has been responsible from the standpoint of Russian interests. And what other interests should he serve when you get down to it? Uh, now, in doing this, there have been, I think, some very negative features. The way, for example, they, they, they handled the Yukos affair and Khodorkovsky uh, ha has weakened the integrity of their judicial system. Uh, but I think basically, uh, as I may have mentioned before, Russia remains infinitely freer than it was in the Soviet period. He is not going back to the Soviet period in any way. He is centralizing more and more power in Moscow's hands, but in a country which, you know, it, Russia itself would tend to fall apart if it didn't have a fairly strong center. So on the whole, what I see him doing is not greatly damaging to us, and one of the areas that I absolutely disagree with the Council on Foreign Affairs uh, Committee uh, that um, uh, Linda mentioned at the beginning uh, is that we should somehow tailor our policy uh, to try to influence Russia's internal policy. It doesn't work. It just makes them mad. And they will say, what are you doing? Saying, we're not democratic. We've got a president with, who's running 75% approval in polls, who was elected with 70% of the thing. And you're telling us we don't have democracy? Yeah, my wife, uh, Rebecca, uh, mentioned the value of the lives of each of these to the, to the cause. Yes. Well, you know, I was beginning to run out of time. I tend to run on and on. But when I was talking about the two presidents, um, one of the things that they were so different in many respects, but in one respect, they were very similar. They were both extremely close to their wives, and, and their wives were probably their closest advisors. Uh, and uh, in that sense, uh, both Raisa Gorbacheva and Nancy Reagan played very critical roles. Even though the two of them did not get along very well personally, their influence on their husbands was all very positive, and it was a very powerful factor in this whole equation. Last question over here. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, I'll never challenge your credentials being on the inside of all this activity. It seems to me you're being more than generous at these things that, that allegedly happened within the Soviet Empire on their own uh, as opposed to the influence and the planning done by the Reagan administration, in particular the economic actions that were taken to build up and the absolute insistence for Reykjavik on keeping Star Wars. Uh, do you think that, for example, those seismic events you talked about, the pressure from within and his and Gorbachev's doing away with the power of the Communist Party would have happened if you didn't have a Ronald Reagan there, if, for example, you still had Jimmy Carter as president? Uh, the problem, um, well, actually, if Carter had, had another um, uh, a term, he would have done many things that Reagan did. He already, his defense budget was already almost as big as, as, as Reagan's uh, that got approved. Uh, that's one thing. We don't know what he would do. The Carter's problem would have been that he probably could not strike the sort of deal that Reagan struck with Gorbachev and get it through the Senate. Reagan's great strength in, in these issues domestically was he could not be successfully outflanked from the right. Almost any Democratic president could and would have been. 
I don't think any other president, even George Bush the elder, who was not fully trusted by the right wing, unlike his son, uh, you know, probably could not have gotten the INF Treaty through the Senate. Even Reagan lost five votes on it. So uh, that was one of the strengths. Once we got the agreements, Reagan could, could deliver. Now, on the pressure on the Soviet Union, things like the Strategic Defense Initiative did not break them. They were actually doing more research than we were. Now, clearly, Gorbachev did not want to be forced to racists in SDI, but he wanted to cut back on the other things. They were the ones that were uh, the, the crushing. So the idea that the Strategic Defense Initiative somehow bankrupted them is, is pretty ridiculous when you look at the facts. What Reagan was able to do with the defense buildup and, the, in effect, the challenge, you want an arms race, you're going to lose it, is to give Gorbachev the incentive to meet our demands of much deeper cuts than they had wanted before, of cuts that would bring us down to equal levels, uh, and, uh, and so on, as a price for these other things that he wanted to do. And also, linking it to the internal situation, we didn't really move in a radical way on those arms control things that Gorbachev wanted until he began to reform internally and meet these other points in our agenda. So it was the combination of these things. Now, would, the Soviet Union was in economic difficulty, but if Gorbachev hadn't tried to reform it, it would probably still be there today. It would be hobbling along, and people wouldn't live as well as the West, but if they had all of the repressive uh, uh, things, you couldn't really have a revolution from below, and people weren't starving. You know, they, they were living pretty well by their standards. It's just they weren't living that well by the standards of the outside world. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was slowing down. The Soviet Union was not in economic crisis at that point. And I think that's, that's why I don't, see, I don't see the logic of those who say, in effect, that these pressures did them in. Their own, this, the inefficiency of their own system eventually did them in when they, didn't, they were not able to control the reform process. But these pressures that we brought to bear on them certainly gave them intensified the incentive they already had to end the arms race as quickly as possible, even if it meant ending it on our terms. And it was in their interest, my point is, it was in their interest to end it on our terms. Uh, and, uh, and certainly the pressure we brought to bear helped bring that about. Thank you very much, Mr. There's a, there's a lot more information in the book, but I think probably the most important words in it, Ambassador, are the uh, dedication to Rebecca Matlock. Thank you both for your service to our country. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.